Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back to All the Small Things with me, Venetia Lamana. I'm really excited to have an interview episode for you today featuring Kieran Yates. Kieran Yates is a London based journalist, broadcaster, and author. Her debut book, All the Houses I've Ever Lived In, is part memoir, part social commentary. It's a love letter to home and community and a vital and timely expose on the UK's housing crisis. By the age of 25, Kieran had lived in 20 different houses across the country, from council estates in London to car showrooms in rural Wales. Drawing on personal experience, interviews with tenants across the country and the stories behind our interiors, she explores the unexpected ways we can fight back, highlighting the invaluable work of community organisers who have led the way to change and improve the housing system, inviting us to reimagine what the future of housing could look like. All the Houses I've Ever Lived In is easily my favourite non-fiction read of 2023 so far. But don't just take my word for it. Candice Carty-Williams, who is the author of Queenie and writer of BBC's Champion series, says, I believe that Kieran Yates was born to write, but crucially to write this vital piece of work. I tore through the pages, a book I'll read over and over again. In this conversation, I asked Kieran about everything from home ownership to landlords to pollution and clean air, access to green space, influencer home account culture, and how we can all be a part of bringing about a fairer housing system. I really hope you enjoyed this interview. Here is Kieran Yates on All the Small Things. Kieran Yates, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I would love to start as we always do on all the small things. Do you have any rituals that you like to practice to help you feel grounded when you start your day? Well, uh, I guess this is the perfect place to talk about small things that have a big impact for me anyway. And I think that the change for me has definitely been about thinking about really what I want to do, what I want to achieve in the day, whether it is just getting up and making a coffee or just like taking a walk around the block. Just because definitely in my 20s, I really woke up thinking about work and I woke up thinking about like, oh, this is what I have to write today. This is my deadline. This is what I have to achieve. And I think, you know, the last few years, just waking up and thinking, oh, I'm going to do this little thing for myself has been very transformative. So yeah, I hope that people can take that on board too. Was it the pandemic that influenced that kind of shift? It was, but it was also like, you know, sort of meditating on the idea that we're more than what we do, which is something that we've always known. But I think it can be particularly tricky to make those distinctions as writers when you're very absorbed in thinking about what you're producing and you're thinking about, you know, how you can take conversations that you're having sort of to different places. 
And I think that for me, it's been less about switching off and more about moving horizontally or just thinking differently. That's super helpful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm really excited to talk about your book, All the Houses I've Ever Lived In. I think some of my listeners will already know I absolutely adored it. It's part memoir, part polemic. It's poignant. It's warm. It's joyful. The last chapter had me crying. Why did you want to write about this sometimes heavy and quite complicated topic in the style and format that you chose? Well, I think that sometimes talking or thinking about housing can really be reduced to thinking about it through the lens of policy. You know, we know housing policy is a notoriously complicated part of law, not only because it can feel dry, but, you know, sometimes the policy feels like it has very little application on our day-to-day lived experiences and our everyday lives. And so I was just thinking about, you know, my own experience of like living so many different places, being precariously housed, moving in and out from city to countryside. Obviously a unique experience to me, but it's an experience that, you know, so many people in the UK are experiencing. We know that 17 and a half million people don't have access to secure, stable housing. And so, you know, this kind of movement is really, I think, the story of a generation of people and will continue to be. And I think that memoir is a really good way into thinking about it, not only because there's ways that you can write joy into those experiences. You know, you can talk about how funny it is sometimes with the objects that you bring with you. You can talk about how fun it is to make friendships. And you can also talk about, you know, how difficult it is to resist, you know, the state or your landlord or property developers in a much warmer way, I think, than straight reportage can do sometimes. But I also think that it's a good way of making the connection between how we live and housing and, you know, as in capital H housing and home, which is connected to every part of how we live from access to green space, to the music we listen to, to the culture we absorb and the bailiffs that we might see on our street. I think especially with topics related to social justice, I think a lot of us are experiencing a sense of nihilism at the moment because of how we feel like the system is such a big beast that we can't defeat. That's one of the reasons why I appreciated this format of your book, because I think it makes the issue more accessible. And you write about the accessibility of things like contracts and menial admin that is very restrictive for a lot of people and how that's like a function of the system. You know, these things exist by design. The policing of, say, you know, not having somebody in your life that could be a guarantor, for instance, is such a huge barrier and challenge to so many people. And, you know, a lot of the way to kind of navigate your way through this is having a little bit of admin fluency. And it's a very classist admin fluency. You know, I write about growing up on an estate and, you know, writing letters to my local housing association and doing translation and doing that kind of stuff. But all of that administrative knowledge just you know wasn't really revered or respected it was all about do you have a guarantor do you have savings what's your credit like and that was really important and if you didn't have those things it was like oh you don't really understand you're not really an adult are you let alone the fact that you have been dealing with you know very adult issues from a very young age and so yeah I think that there's lots to unfurl from those sorts of things but also you know There's loads of comedy in that. And what I hope the book does is say, 
if you've ever been in this environment, if you've ever been with the housing association with your mum, if you've ever like heard music through the walls, you know what that feels like. And if you haven't, let me just invite you in a little bit so you can broaden your scope of what it means to just live in Britain today. More on that invitation later, because I think that is something that you do also very effectively. Big question, but maybe something you'll find easy to answer. How would you describe the housing crisis and why is it getting worse? Well, the housing crisis is, you know, a result of years and years of negligence from the state, from no real commitment to house building, certainly, you know, social house building, truly affordable housing rent, so social rented costs. You know, an an unwillingness, I think, to really listen to the needs of some of the most vulnerable tenants in this country. So we think about 1980 as being, you know, year zero, because we think about Thatcher's Housing Act and, you know, how this was a real sort of movement to sell off the majority of our social housing stock in the UK. We also know that this was a Labour idea before it was, you know, really rolled out at scale by Thatcher. But we know that this has been part of a British sensibility and obsession with home ownership, which, you know, really has long roots in Britain and, you know, is connected to our history of colonialism and obsession with aristocracy and land ownership and using land in order to become more wealthy and you know, boost our class status. So I think there's a particularity to the way we think about home ownership in Britain. And I think that this is what has created some of these deep factions of negligence, which is ignoring lots of working class people, ignoring social housing stock, and ultimately allowing property developers and landlords to really be unregulated. And I think that's where, you know, that's where we find ourselves at the moment in a, in a real acute moment of crisis. On the land ownership infatuation that we have in the UK, do you think that's something we should unlearn? And do you see a future where we're less fixated on it? I think that's just what's been sold to us for so long. Like, as long as I can remember, I've been told that, you know, the most sensible, secure thing that I can do for myself is get on a housing ladder. And the fact that that was almost impossible for, I mean, it's been impossible for anybody in my family, but really for my peers, you know, for my immediate community, it just felt like such an outlandish piece of advice for me to further my life that I suppose I just became very acutely aware of like what that means. So I wasn't absorbing that passively and saying, oh, okay, that's just what I need to do. I was really thinking about like, where does that come from? What does that mean if you can't do it? What does it mean if you can? You know, what does it mean if social mobility it has always been a horizontal line that you just always move across and that's always in your future? And what does it mean if you're somebody like me who on paper has done everything right by going to university and working in industry and then later recognises that social mobility is a myth and, you know, under very little interrogation, it all comes falling down. So I think that, yeah, our obsession has been sold to us. You know, historically, it's been sold to us in the ways that I've described, but in the contemporary, it's sold to us by everything from like sentient Instagram accounts showing us, 
about the delights of renovation and the success of renovation to, you know, influencers showing off their keys and, you know, being in, you know, housing style sections of, you know, the times or whatever. You know, there is a kind of gloss that is created around the idea of home as luxury commodity. And I think that that endures. And so I think that the first step is just about acknowledging where that comes from and acknowledging what that really means rather than, you know, passively receiving that as good advice, as that's what we should all do, and using it as a springboard to think about what else could be possible. Well, what if we just had really good quality long-term private rental accommodation? What if we had really good quality social rental options? How important does home ownership become then? I've heard you say that housing is the issue that all other issues in our society orbit around. Why do you think this? The way that we are able to live has a major impact on the opportunities we're afforded academically, you know, how our relationship with education is hinged on how stable we feel at home. Our access to healthcare is obviously much better if you're not moving around from GP to GP all the time. And I write in the book about you know, when I lived in a very moldy bedroom, and I was getting lots of chest infections, what I had to do, even though I was moving around was memorize my old postcode, so I could keep my singular GP because she knew me really well. Not that I'm saying we should scan the NHS. But I'm just saying that really helped me, you know, that was really useful for my lungs, to be able to do that. But so many people in this country are having to move GPs, you know, sort of month to month, you know, our access to clean air, our access to green space, our kind of cultural representation is really all hinged to the way we think about home. And so precarity and health and life chances completely orbit around the places that we live. And, you know, once you recognise that, once maybe through experiencing it firsthand or reading about it or reporting on it, You recognise the complete disconnect between the lives of so many tenants in this country and what's happening at central government, who have frequent turnover of housing ministers, which really sends the message that this is not priority. This has to be a priority focus for us from central government because it's a priority focus for tenants and it's a priority focus for activists who are doing that work on the ground every day. I really appreciate how you always uplift the work of activists and community organisers. What can we learn about the way that they organise and mobilise? I think that, you know, what activists do really well is they use our past, present and future very effectively. So, you know, my book really looks at the archive of working class housing movements. You know, it looks at immigrant communities and how they have, you know, forged home via things like mortgage committees where you know everybody paid a pound into a pot every week to try and put a down payment on a house because racist bank lenders made that impossible or working class housing movements you know really put pressure on local councils to try and house people and so the archives are really rich with the ways that this has been done everything from filming mold in people's homes and calling them damp tapes which I really recommend people try and look through in the video archives and using those to embarrass local councils to try and enact some change to where we are now, you know, in our very rich moment of rent strikes and, you know, conversations about rent regulation to where we could be going next. And so I think that activists and the conversations that are being had right now use the archive and say, okay, what have we learned from the past? What can we continue to learn? 
what can we do better? What can we update? What can we use as a framework for moving forward? And we see that applied all the time. That is really inspiring and really helpful for us to think about. Um, You mentioned your lungs and clean air and in the book you write about moving from the city to the countryside and more widely the privilege of being able to access green spaces and clean air and how important it is that we make these spaces accessible for everyone and I recently listened to an interview with Sadiq Khan on the Guardian Today in Focus podcast and it made me think of your book he was talking about his clean air zone Uh, expansion plan and his experience I will leave it in the show notes for anyone listening because it's a really good listen Um, as you're a Londoner and as you're you know this is really your your subject of expertise I'd love to know what you think about Sadiq's clean air expansion plan so put very simply the clean air expansion plan is based on creating these ultra low emission zones these ULES zones where higher polluting vehicles pay a daily fee and this is to be expanded across Greater London, you know, after August, the fee will be £12.50 a day. There's lots to say about this. I think the first thing is that the language is very useful. You know, I think that more people reckoning with this language of ultra low emissions, and why that is important, and how we really think seriously about the idea of clean air in policy is huge and radical, actually. And that's not to say that the application is always radical, but it is, I think, for a lot of people, especially living in London, but nationally, thinking deeply about these issues is very important. My thinking about like the way that this is distributed is always about how I think about taxation, which kind of relies on individual responsibility, which is to what extent is this means tested? And I think that there's lots of ways that we can think about who is using these vehicles? How is this appropriately distributed based on need and I think that you know there's probably useful conversations to be had there about how we means test these things I know at the moment the exemptions fall on taxis and disabled passenger vehicles and so you know I think that this is useful to say you know not everybody's experiencing cars and driving in the same way I think that that is you know a good conversation to have and it's certainly true You know, I think that these are things that can be worked out. But I think ultimately, yes, thinking about the importance of clean air is absolutely crucial because we know that the air in London is murderous. You know, we know that the inaccessibility of clean air in London disproportionately impacts people of colour and working class people. And when we talk about activism earlier, you know, thanks to activists, that's part of the reason why we know this. You know, that's part of the reason that we're seeing a sea change in the way that we think about air. And I'm thinking about the work of Rosamund Kissy Deborah, you know, whose daughter Ella Kissy Deborah died thanks to the ultra high pollution levels around the South Circular. And, you know, her death was one of the first recorded instances of making this connection between poor air quality and how it has impacted the lungs of a small child. And as a result of that, this year, in 2023, we're seeing the Clean Air Human Rights Bill move through Parliament, and this establishes the right to clean air across England and Wales. And so, you know, the things to say about that is that, one, this is pushed through thanks to grassroots activists, which quite often are, you know, mothers and, you know, mothers of colour. Shout out them always. Two, the idea that we are reclaiming this idea of 
the terms that we we shouldn't agree to, which is that we're living in murderous air quality and the right to clean air is a right for all of us in the same way that a right to green spaces and the right to good quality housing is. So, you know, I think that these conversations are moving in the right direction. I think there's always going to be details that we can kind of dig into as things move forward. And I think we absolutely should. All of this policy should evolve. But I think thinking very seriously about something as fundamental as air quality and green space is completely instrumental. I think also just on the access to green space question, because you're talking about my experience of living in the countryside and living in the city, through the research of my book, you know, I I kind of write about, you know, I grew up in West London and then I moved to Wales. And as a teenager, I was like, oh my God, like the horizon, like the green space. I, you know, I really had no idea that this, you know, was something that I could have access to. And that's not because, you know, I was living this small minded existence. It's because we know that 2.78 million people in the UK live further than a 10 minute walk to their local green space or local park. And this is like in complete opposition to what the World Health Organization tell us that we need. They tell us that everybody needs immediate access to green space. That's simply not the case. And so you know, it becomes more difficult when you have normalised not accessing green space to then push through policy demands and saying, oh, well, we need to build social housing with access to green space. Oh, we need to think deeply about how we can make that more accessible. And I think that there's lots of grassroots groups like Flock Together and POC and Nature who are doing this work not only to reclaim urban green spaces, but rural ones too. And so I think that the conversations in terms of making the countryside more accessible, of course, need to be about, you know, greater representation of, you know, the cultural, social contributions of all the people of colour that we know are doing rich, important work across the countryside. But more importantly than that, I think that we need to make the point that any conversation about rural gentrification is not about Londoners coming in necessarily and and gentrifying the area. It is about central government allowing property developers to be unregulated and come in, destroy communities and create these factions. And I think sometimes the countryside or rural places can feel a little bit hostile. They can feel a bit inaccessible because you think, oh, I'm not wanted here. You know, I'm seen as some kind of enemy. I'm seen as contributing to gentrification. And I think the conversation just has to move to where that responsibility actually lies. And we know that that is from the negligence and poor management from central government. Wow, that was such an incredible answer and such an important reframing and the best reminder to punch up and really think about the people who hold the power at the top. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Navarra Media released some highly revealing Vox Pop style interviews with landlords, with one landlord explaining how landlords get a quote unquote raw deal and how their fellow landlords feel embarrassed to be landlords and consider it to be a present day slur. Another landlord explains how they put rent up on their mortgage free property, not because they needed to, but because they were, and I quote, following the market trends. I would love to know if you saw these videos firstly, and if you did, what did you think? Yeah, I saw them. (laughs) You know, I think it's just so interesting, this kind of framing of, I guess, an obsession with profiteering, which isn't a surprise. You know, I'm a journalist who's been covering housing. So I know keenly the extent to which the profit motive of capitalism is deeply embedded in the housing industrial complex. So you know, what we're seeing is the result of no substantial house building from central government, right? And so they've relied on landlords to provide housing stock. They've said landlords provide housing stock where we're not doing it, therefore, basically letting them do whatever they want when it comes to pricing, when it comes to hiking up rents, when it comes to really exploiting those who are most vulnerable across the UK. When you rely on landlords to provide housing stock, which the government should be doing, and they have absolutely no regulation in the way that rent is managed, we find ourselves in a place where, one, landlords think they are entitled to make profit. They think that, you know, this is their labour. They frame that position as, you know, waged labour and they should be making lots of money from it. Two, the idea that government is let off the hook in terms of, house building targets you know government currently have house building targets of 300,000 they are so far away from that it's like a joke and you know who's picking up the slack property developers and landlords so uh, government are doing a very poor job of respecting tenants and then third of all you know what this speaks to is you know really a class of people the landlord class who are not really well equipped to be landlords They're very easy targets because these are people who have not been trained in, you know, how to be a landlord. These are people who often are using people's rents to pay their mortgage. And so sometimes there's a very thin margin for things like repairs, you know, and as, you know, the cost of labor, the cost of tools, the cost of, you know, workmanship increases, lots of landlords are saying, oh, we can't afford to do that. And so this whole system is like highly stressed landlords doing this in this highly stressed housing market, doing a terrible job and thinking the only way that we can profiteer and get back what we've put in is to constantly increase rent. So it's a long winded way of saying that, you know, of course, this is government's fault. And this sort of hubris that it takes for landlords to say that, you know, we're getting a raw deal and, you know, it's a slur. I think it's something that you hear time and time again, you know, in the writing of the book, you know, I heard exactly the same thing from estate agents, had exactly the same thing from bailiffs, people who are working as part of the structural components 
to uplift and uphold the housing industrial complex think that they are entitled to profit, think that they are entitled to this level of exploitation because they have been told and encouraged to do that. Landlords are encouraged to profiteer. That's just where we are. And that's why it becomes so important that this is resisted by tenants and that tenants are organised and that they're angry. And crucially, they build coalitions with each other and other tenants across the board, not just private renters, you know, homeowners, people in social housing, anybody with a little bit of time, capacity and agency to push back should do. Which leads me really nicely on to my next question, which is about your work with the London Renters Union and how this kind of really aided your understanding of this issue. And also to your point about how this is where the resistance is, this is where we need to get organised. What's your experience been like with the London Renters Union and how would you advise folks can learn to really stand up for themselves against the system? Well, you know, I would urge everybody to join their local renters union. The London Renters Union is like brilliant and you know very well resourced and very organized and I'm constantly inspired by the work that they do. And they have factions, you know, all across London. Shout out the Lewisham LRU branch. Uh, but you know, organizations like Acorn, that are national, you know, organizations, you know, even hook to, you know, big mainstream organizations like Shelter are doing excellent work in this space. And when I talk about excellent work, I talk about everything from saying, here is some administrative help. You know, here is a letter template that you can write to your landlord when you're having, you know, disrepair or mold issues. Here is like something that you can say if you want to, you know, build a conversation about rent regulation. You know, these is how rent pressure zones are being rolled out in places like Scotland. What can we learn from that? How can we use that to kind of mobilise together and rethink the conversations that we have with our landlord? And so the setup of a of a renters union, well, speaking about the London Renters Union, is that you have a local branch, you go down to your local branch, there's people who are in lots of different kinds of mixed tendencies and have, you know, sort of gradient understanding of housing rules, of tenancy agreements, of, you know, sort of everything to do with the way that we live today. And then there are dedicated people who are really trained and have real expertise in this area. And then people are invited to talk about the issues that they are having in their tenancies at any which time. And then usually people form groups. And so we'll say, okay, so you're having a mold issue. Let's go here. Okay, you're having an issue with the, you know, your landlord contacting the home office. Let's sit here. Okay, your rent has escalated 10 times the amount. Let's all sit here. And then within groups, everybody listens and learns and gives advice and says, okay, how can we continue this moving forward? And this is all, you know, a way of of learning, you know. But I do think that also when we think about the renters reform bill, you know, which has a long way to go in terms of really doing kind of, in, in my opinion, sufficient work to take us to a better place in housing in the UK, you know, things like rolling out a landlord register to root out rogue landlords, it's really important. And it's thanks to the work of activists pushing that through. And the abolition of the Section 21 no-fault evictions, where renters are evicted on basically no grounds from landlords, will be abolished if you know if the government moves this through at pace. But that is completely thanks to the tireless work of activists on the ground. That has been pushed through thanks to housing organisations, working class housing movements, tenants, grassroots organisations. That is such a 
good and optimistic reminder about how we win. You know, we win all the time. We're making small wins constantly. And I think that that is something to hold on to. We are told all the time, you know, we are barraged with these ideas that we are powerless and we're not. Rent strikes do work. Pushing through rent regulation does work. Taking your landlord to court over a mold and disrepair claim does work. It just takes a lot of effort and a lot of community. And if you can mobilize and be organized, I think that's the most optimistic and hopeful place that we can possibly be. That is super hopeful. Thank you. I would love to hear your thoughts about influencer culture and the commodification of the home. Is home ownership just another way to self-brand? I think this relationship between home ownership and influencer culture is, you know, funny and interesting, but also inevitable because influencer culture ultimately, you know, historically it has been about selling an aspirational lifestyle. And home ownership is increasingly an aspirational lifestyle. You know, it's increasingly an aspirational luxury commodity, which creates winners and losers of the housing system. And, you know, I think that when you frame home ownership in this way as something that can be won, as something that is granted when you simply work hard enough, it makes it much more difficult to advocate for it as, you know, a universal right, because you frame it as a luxury you frame it as a gift, you frame it as something that is rare and special and amazing and only happens if you work really, really hard. So I think that that's really dangerous. But I do think that the depictions of home ownership online are are fascinating because the whole industry created around home ownership, which tells us that this is the case, that tells us this is luxury, has tell us that this is like special and you know, really difficult to access. So in the, in my book, I write about, you know, estate agents and I write about how they enlist like third party production crews basically to create these videos that go online on places like Zoopla. You know, I interviewed a model who was from an agency and was booked for one of these jobs. And he was telling me that his job was basically to be on set that day in like a new luxury apartment. I think it was in Croydon. And he just had to walk around this like shiny new build and brush his teeth and make a piece of toast and kind of pretend that he was like living in the place. And so you see how these like very highly produced, slick, shiny videos with these beautiful models then end up on Zoopla and they sell us something. They sell us about this aspirational lifestyle of like what it means to live in a place like this, you know, what this can mean. And so all of this is kind of upheld. There's so many tendrils that are telling us that this is shiny and luxurious. I interviewed another person whose job it is to kind of Photoshop images that go on Zoopla and to doctor images. And, you know, it's a very lucrative business. And this is kind of everything that you're up against all the time. And so when we think about housing in this way, it's by design. You know, this is the system working as it should. And influencers are just one component of that. You know, they're a corner of the crisis that tell us that there is a specific way to have your home and it looks quite identical to me anyway. But it's about, you know, the glamour of home ownership. Yeah, I find it tedious, but I recognise that, you know, these are not individuals at fault. These are just, you know, people who are part of a larger system and they enact a tiny corner of this. A big feature of your book is how the home is very much a place of sanctuary, love, care, community, 
and our homes definitely tells you know so many stories I was wondering if you could tell us about some of the perhaps home furnishings or kind of interior choices that you have or perhaps objects you've had for a long time or things that mean a lot to you and what they say about you as a person and and also I guess like what you would like them to say because I think certainly for me I have things in my home that are just for me and then I I know I have other things I might oh that probably signifies something about me and that's what I want to say about myself (laughs) yeah completely you know what I find really funny as well and actually related to influencer culture is like the aesthetics the aesthetics of like house and home and you know there's very specific kinds of taste which is like very like policed through the lens of class or you know culture or whatever and I find like the slickness of very particular kinds of interior design really interesting but also because we know it tells us something about wider trends right so during the pandemic lots of people painted arches as a kind of fantasy escape to like another dimension or another place when we were locked inside our homes you know when the kind of millennial pink moment where you know a very kind of mainstream feminism was kind of proliferating across the internet and you know through tumblr we saw a lot of millennial pink walls in people's homes or you know everywhere and you know as people were kind of feeling the oppression of like social and political chaos the kind of grayish interior furnishings really proliferated this kind of very frictionless minimal you know, sort of aesthetic, which really kind of encouraged a complete disengagement with everything, a complete frictionless, a complete seamless relationship with home and life, which makes perfect sense, you know, when people are going through unimaginable chaos and pandemic. So the way that we we kind of design our homes, if we're able to, tells us a lot about where we are. And that's everything from like not being able to like put up a picture frame in a rented place to like the countless rental properties that I have lived in which are just magnolia commodity shells you know they're just like personalityless for for a specific reason but yeah you're right that you know any book about housing and and you know my book especially is about you know the act of moving from place to place and that becomes more about the objects that you bring with you you know what do you take with you what does it say about you you know, what are the stories that they tell about, you know, where you've been and, and what you hold on to and where you might want to go next. And so one of the things that I have is a fake gold plastic tissue box. Um, which You write about this in the book quite a lot. Yeah, which, you know, lots of Punjabi homes have actually. And, you know, all of these kind of tchotchkes that tell us about some of the migrant networks that we've come from and, and sharing networks. And, you know, I interview some psychologists in the book and they make this distinction between personal objects and linking objects which is what I think you're really talking about they talk about personal objects being something like you know you go to Alton Towers and you have a great day and you're like on a roller coaster and on Nemesis and you buy a magnet and you have a wicked day and you come back and you put the magnet on your fridge and you know every time you look at that magnet it reminds you of that day at Alton Towers And that's distinguished from a linking object, which is an object like my gold tissue box, which I bought for a fiver, you know, at Southall Market. And I bring it into my home. And every time I look at it, it's not reminding me of like the innocuous rainy day at the market that I bought it, but of something larger. It's reminding me of like a cultural history of, you know, all of those South Asian homes, you know, in here and in India that have an object like this in it. It takes us to this kind of what Rushdie calls an imaginary homeland, a more abstract place. 
And so, you know, I think that we all have these kinds of objects. You know, we have objects that are functional and serve a purpose and remind us of specific memories. And we have other things that are like textural, you know, like a baby blanket or you know, something that even reminds you of childhood, you know, something that you might have bought because it reminds you of nostalgia of another object. And I think that those are really important. But I also think that it's funny because, you know, I have this kind of like, oh, this like beautiful relationship with object. And then I look around at some of the things that I bought with me and it's like a bag of like old phones that I'm never going to use. that I've just like kept forever because I just can't, I can't throw away my like Blackberry. I've got like an old packet of like Will and Kate royal condoms from when they got married, which was like, I don't, like a piece of merch at the time. I don't even know where I got it from, but I just thought that's funny. I think someone gave it to me. And I've just kept it like I've moved like about 20 times in the last 10 years and they somehow have stayed with me. And I'm just like, why? And I think it's just because they like took me to like that exact moment and I can't quite throw them away. And so, yeah, I mean, the objects we bring with us tell us lots of stories and some are completely chaotic. That's definitely official merch, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Um Towards the end of the book, you write about middle-class guilt when it comes to home ownership. How can homeowners be a part of the solution and act in solidarity with those most impacted by the housing crisis? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I'll say about that is that I just don't find guilt a useful emotion. You know, I don't think it's useful in kind of pushing us forward and like mobilising and like, you know, reimagining differently and thinking differently. I come from the school of you know, really growing up, reading, growing up in my 20s, reading like Baldwin and, and Lord and, you know, thinking about what else could be possible. And when we think about, you know, radical options, we think about how do we get us all together so we can discuss this, that we can do trial and error and we can get things wrong and we can get things right and we can kind of move forward and bring the imaginary into more of a real world space. And the only way that you can do that is by recognising that we're not separate interest groups recognizing that there has to be space for us to come together whether that's physically or digitally and so I think that middle-class homeowners or or any homeowners I'm just saying middle-class because historically that has obviously been the class of people who have been able to own but I mean but even they are, are struggling under the current in the current crisis but I think that often homeowners feel so guilty that they own a home that they're like oh I don't think I could be part of this conversation I just don't think that's useful at all I don't think that's ever been useful homeowners are exactly the kind of people who should be attending renters unions who you know should be turning up showing up places like the LRU because sometimes those are people who have capacity to say oh I can actually help you with this I've experienced this firsthand this is what I can provide for you whether that is knowledge or expertise or whatever, you know, some people use, you know, a bed for the night, some people open up their homes, you know, I think all of these things are so useful in saying, these things are possible, and we can help one another. And when you struggle, we all struggle. The idea that the things that are impacting working class tenants, the cladding issue at Grenfell, for instance, is completely disconnected from homeowners across the country is obviously a fallacy and we know that cladding has been a a huge issue as a result of that because it started to impact what we might call the middle classes so I think that all these things are connected I think you just have to see yourself that way I think that that's really important and really beautiful I think it opens up you know conversations that are not just political but are also cultural and I think that that is like incredibly important to move us forward together 
I think what's really beautiful about what you just said as well is that can be applied to so many uh, issues related to social justice and climate justice, you know, kind of instead of fixating on any kind of guilt or privilege you have, like how can you use that privilege that you have to create further progress and be in solidarity with folks who perhaps are at the forefront of the issue. Also recently I've noticed and I found it really refreshing actually, and and perhaps you can speak to this, um, is how more people are talking about how if they have bought a home or got on the property ladder, they're talking about how they have managed to do that. And this is something that you write about uh, as well and something I've heard you speak about a few times. Like they'll talk about perhaps generational wealth that they have or a partner that they're with who has helped them get on the ladder. And that feels really helpful as well. Yeah, I think transparency is really key because we know often, I mean, certainly in my experience, you know, from working class background and lots of my working class peers who have been able to own, it is by exceptional circumstances. It is by circumstances which are completely almost impossible to replicate. It is through, often through luck, you're right, through relationships, maybe through some generational wealth from a partner, maybe the fact that you got, you know, you're able to keep your job in like some of the most precarious employment times, you know, maybe you got a bonus. The way that I was able to do that was like in part thanks to some of the advance from my book, extremely difficult to replicate, might never happen again. And, you know, and my partner, you know, who had a, you know, a little bit of savings from his family. And it's like, okay, this is the reality. This is how lots of people do this. But it doesn't mean that you've suddenly bought yourself out of precarity. You know, the success of my current stability is really hinged on, you know, the success of my relationship with my partner, you know, the success of my very precarious job as a journalist. You know, all of these things, I think, have to be spoken about in a very transparent way. Because only when we talk about kind of money and wealth and ownership and housing, in this way, we can make very clear connections to the labour market. And then we can make very clear coalitions with workers across the UK. So striking workers on the front line of pickets are completely connected to this. And I was really encouraged, you know, at kind of the last round of strikes that I attended, which was uh, University College Union, uh, the RCN, which is the Nurses Union and the RMT, all being in coalition with London Renters Union because they completely understood that in a moment where public sector jobs are experiencing historic wage freezes, this is creating a housing gap. And so I think that, you know, once we are able to speak transparently about where we are, we are able to not only distribute any privilege that we have, but we're able to educate other people about the reality of what it means to live in Britain today. And thirdly, crucially, create coalitions with people on pickets, with you know people who are navigating a labour market, which is more and more precarious every day. And all of these things are connected. You know, I don't think you can, anyone can have a conversation about housing without talking about public sector wage freezes. Of course you can't. It, nobody can talk about housing without talking about, about the fact that only 12% of those on housing benefit have their benefit completely covered. We're living in really scandalous times. And I think that once you're very open about how difficult it is to just maintain a standard of living that grants you a little bit of stability, then all of us are a little bit more educated about who we are and and how we live as a country. 
the coalition between community-led movements is so hopeful and it feels like a nice way to round off this part of the conversation. How would you feel about a quick, quick fire round? Go ahead. Quick fire with Kieran. Wake up early or have a lion? Lion. Reading or writing? Oh, uh, writing is hell, but writing. (laughs) (laughs) Interviewing or being interviewed? Interviewing. Twitter or threads? Twitter is hell, but yeah, I suppose it's like the hell that I will die on. (laughs) Heels or trainers? Trainers. In the trees or by the sea? Mm, By the sea. Fiction or non-fiction? Non-fiction. Podcasts or TV series? Podcasts. Negroni or margarita? Margarita. Sunrise or sunset? Sunset. And finally, routine or spontaneity? Uh, Spontaneity, unless it's coming from central government. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, the question I ask all my guests, what is one thing you hope your future self will have achieved? I hope that I would have achieved, I suppose, what every author wants to achieve, which is that, you know, the messaging of the work that you produce, in my case, the book, you know, really resonates and really teaches people and really educates people. And, you know, I hope that I would have achieved a little bit of change for people who didn't know that there was change to be had or taught them something they didn't realise and kind of hopefully activated or mobilized them to say oh okay maybe I'll join something maybe I'll just learn a little bit about that well you have absolutely done this in all the houses I've ever lived in I promise to pre-order and buy whatever you write in the future because I just think you're so gifted and talented and I'm so excited for anyone listening who hasn't read this book to read this book and all your future books as well (laughs) thank you so much Thank you so much for listening to this conversation. If you enjoyed it, please do leave all the small things a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really helps get the show out there and allows me to continue making it. As always, links to my guests and their work will be in the show notes, as well as any extra resources or things mentioned in the conversation. And I will see you back here next week for a brand new episode. Until then, I'm wishing you the best possible day and I'll see you soon. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.